Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Obviously, I've never addressed Bacon's Castle before, so I really appreciate the opportunity, but uh, usually my congregation is at scout camp. I'm the ranger over at Pipsico, and so what I really like to do is uh, start on like an equalizing note so that when I talk about Scripture, everybody who's out in the, uh, out in the bleachers uh, knows, um, understands uh, when we study Scripture, um, what sort of reverence do we have for Scripture? So uh, we're we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Psalm 33 today. But um, I think it's good to just continuously be reminded of Paul's words to Timothy. So just here is our here's how we get our hearts and minds calibrated for the Word of God. So Paul tells Timothy, um, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's what we're doing today is we're trying to go back into Scripture, what Paul considered Scripture, and prepare ourselves to be equipped for every good work, fully equipped for every good work. So, okay. So a little bit of introduction. I think it's, it's always a really good idea to, when you're going to talk about the Psalms, like it's just not a word we use very often today, you know, out there at work, you know, hey boss, let's sing some songs or, you know, I just not, I don't hear anybody at 7-Eleven talking about Psalms. So it seems like it's a good idea when we talk about them, we ought to have a bit of a, um, a bit of a reminder about what they are. And so many of them are songs or prayers and praises, um, and uh, so something that was really helpful to me, it took a, a number of years, it took a class actually to kind of put in perspective just how beautiful the songs can be for the church. Obviously for Israel and the Jewish uh, community, the Psalms ring so close to home. And for Christians, sometimes it can be a little bit more of a struggle because some of the material just seems so much more distant. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus prayed these psalms. He prayed these psalms. So if they were like, if they were, if they were so relevant to Jesus, um, and many of them fulfill, you know, Jesus fulfilled elements of the psalms um, in his life and ministry and uh, resurrection and his rulership. So it seems worthy for us to to keep that in mind. Is how is our how did our Savior look at these psalms? How did they how did they matter to him? And how did he, how was he encouraged during his ministry through the Psalms? And so today I, um, we're going to talk about Psalm 33, but I have a curious question here. And, and, you know, the answer should be fairly apparent, but, um, let's talk about food. All right. Who, who here, you you can raise your hand if you want to, if you're, that's cool. I, I like audience participation, but who here has cooked a meal? I knew there's going to be some people who who had it, and that's that's fine. That's cool and everything. So like, there's like this beautiful creativity 
that's part of cooking a meal. Like it is just, it's, you know, there's something inside. Well, there's sometimes I suppose at the very end of it, there's like maybe perhaps relief that you're done and you're not hungry anymore. But I, I think for many of us, there's this sense of fulfillment that when you finish cooking a meal, you are a creator, right? And your food is worthy of praise and a little bit of celebration. And so um, I just wanted to, you know, who, who had that? Who has, who's had that feeling? And so, so let's take it like to another level, okay? So who has prepared a meal vicariously through somebody else? For example, at our household, Eleanor, Mary, would, would you like to cook some mac and cheese? And, and like, bam, all of a sudden, like, I just cooked mac and cheese using the hands of somebody else. And I feel like this masterful creator because it's done, right? I mean, that's taking your game to the next level. Yeah? Anybody ever done that? I mean, vicarious, you know, cooked a meal through somebody else? That's great. There's, I mean, there's, there are a lot of folks in Surrey County who you have, you know, we have the luxury here of being in an environment where it's even easier to cook from scratch, you know? Um, so it wasn't until, this is really embarrassing, you gotta, you gotta forgive me, like now, but I'm still in the introduction to this message. It wasn't until like a week ago or two weeks ago that I'd had like, you know, really had raw milk for the first time. Now that I've said that, I, I recall one other time that was within the last year, but it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I'd ever had raw milk before. So like the idea of, the idea of preparing milk even, like, uh, man, the, just uh, the glorious work of our hands. And so, all right, so let's take that scenario to the, to the next level. Who has cooked a meal with no words before through somebody else, like you, you know, you've given, you've successfully given somebody the look, like, and then there's a meal. So you've been able to do this. So you've succeeded in this effort through the labor of your body language. No words. I mean, I mean, you know, you can't burn fewer calories than that and cook a successful meal, right? I think that the pool just narrowed a little bit, and. It, and so the last one would be who has been able to successfully cook a meal exclusively through extrasensory perception. I think that's what ESP stands for. That is a challenge. So to, to bring it back into the Psalms, the Psalm 33 is a praise to God, a praise to our creator God. And so I think it's easy sometimes for us as Christians to be as people of faith to momentarily in bits and pieces to be grateful and truly praise and worship God. It's, it's in, it, you know, I'm excited about the idea of like cooking a meal through somebody else, you know, but I mean, consider what God has done and who God is. So sometimes I wonder like, are we giving God the praise that's due him? I mean, like sometimes I wonder if we need to be a little bit more excited I got microphone all over my notes. So the Psalms, if you're not familiar, they're broken into five sections. The book is in broken, you know, ordinarily many books of, in the Bible are, a book is broken into chapters, but Psalms isn't broken into chapters, it's broken into more books. So Psalms has five books. People make associations in different ways, but one thing that I find pretty interesting is that I think the Hebrew tradition has been, been so fascinating in finding symbolism um, and, and, and matching stuff up, uh, they have lived very intentionally, in many ways, very well. But the, so Psalms, uh, the first book, um, very much c- corresponds to 
the book of Genesis. A lot of the thoughts, a lot of the praise kind of corresponds to Genesis. Book two of Psalms corresponds pretty well to Exodus. Um, Psalms about Israel and redemption with hymns of petition. Book three uh, corresponds pretty well to the book of Leviticus. We have temple worship and ritual worship and things like that. Uh, so um, you have yeah, hymns of petition. Book four, Psalms about our pilgrimage on the earth. That corresponds well to Israel wandering in the wilderness and the book of Numbers. Psalm five is about praise and the word of God, and it corresponds pretty well to Deuteronomy, which is in some ways uh, Moses' recollection, retelling of... Um, of the, of the recent Jewish um, Israelite uh, experience. And it has anthems of praise and anticipation. Authorship of, of Psalm 33, this, uh, this seems to be a fairly consistent thing. Uh, it, in many Bibles, they don't assign authorship to, to, for Psalm 33, but there are a lot of Hebrew manuscripts and Greek manuscripts, and even the Greek Septuagint, where they assign the credit to David. And it's really quite remarkable how well Psalm 33 fits right where it is between Psalm 32 and Psalm 34. Um, Psalm 32 begins, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And it talks about the righteous person and the joy and praise they should have in their life. And it finishes, Psalm 32 basically finishes the exact same way Psalm 33 starts. Rejoice in Yahweh, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. And then Psalm 34 is, you know, God delivers the righteous. I will praise Yahweh all at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. They're just, they marry so well together. So um, the point here for Psalm 33, and I'll read it here in just a second, is that God is worthy of praise. And there are just, there is this cycle within creation, people, of of God's praiseworthiness, right? And redemption and deliverance and renewed enthusiasm for God. Okay, so um, that is, um, so now let me, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this. And so in studying and preparing for this message, I had the opportunity, luxury to like read many different Many different translations, and I think there's some really beautiful ones out there that are great at, at taking the manuscript language and giving us a good thought-for-thought thought picture of what the, what the psalm is saying. But I think this is actually one where we're not doing ourselves justice if we read it on a thought-for-thought thought basis. The words on this one are so specific, and it's, it's kind of easy to stray or not, not really get the not get the eternal picture. I think oftentimes when we go to worship where we're trying to learn as Christians and figure out what our faith is and develop our faith in God and work with our families and talk to our friends and be good employees at work, sometimes, just because of the nature of our situation, we are, we're too focused on this life. We're too focused on the finite and not the infinite. So that's why I think a little bit more word-for-word translation for Psalm 33 is is the best thing that we can do for ourselves today in this moment. So here is Psalm 33. Uh, and this is, this is another thing. Jewish tradition, you have a lot of translations where your Bible, or it says Lord in the Old Testament, and the, and the L is capitalized, and O-R-D is, in, is still capitalized, but it's smaller. It's called small caps. In the, in the beginning of your Bible, it'll usually explain that. And so the, in the Old Testament, the manuscripts, 
they replaced Yahweh, which is how God told Moses in Exodus. He said, My, you know, Moses says, who should I tell your people you are? And, and God tells Moses, my name is Yahweh. I mean, I am who I am. And this is how I want to be known throughout all generations. And so I think it's really important if we're going to get to know God, especially in an intimate setting of a psalm and poetry, I think we need to be very personal. If God wants to be known this way, we need to, we need to hear it that way. So read, beginning of the psalm, verse 1, Rejoice in Yahweh, you righteous ones. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise Yahweh with the harp. Make music to him on the tend ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a joyful shout. The word of Yahweh is right and true, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of Yahweh's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth feel the fear of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations. He thwarts the intents of the peoples. The plan of Yahweh stands firm forever. The intents of the intents of his heart from one generation to the next. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people he has chosen for his inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the people of the earth from his dwelling place. He who forms the heart of all, he considers their works. A king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation. It provides no escape by its great power. Now, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loyal love, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul is patiently waiting for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. Our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your loyal love rest on us, Yahweh. We put our hope in you. So there there are many different elements in this psalm, and it's a general psalm. It's not talking about a specific thing necessarily just there. Not a specific battle or a specific famine or anything like that. It's, it's talking about some trials and anticipation of suffering and deliverance, but it's praising God for who God is. And so something about this psalm, the beauty of it being so general is it's, it's just about creedal. You know, like we have the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. It's kind of creedal. It's a really good reminder to everyone all the time throughout all generations. We have a really praiseworthy God, and we should rejoice in that. And so, you know, as a church, trying to make sure that we're finding the relevance uh, for us today, I, you know, the, it seemed like a really worthwhile endeavor to hunt down through the scriptures and see if anybody else had a testimony that said all the elements of this psalm uh, in scripture. And so, 
I'm not going to give you chapter and verses, um, but uh, I have really found true enjoyment in in the scavenger hunt that is that is in, that is open to all of us in Scripture, and so <clears throat> we need to keep these people in mind when we consider the truth and validity uh, of Scripture and the application in our lives. We need to make sure that we're looking through, we're looking at the world through a clear lens. And so here we are, Job, the book of Job. He says everything, his testimony is everything from Psalm 33. And Job went through a lot. In the opening to Job, uh, and in God's own words, Satan incited God against Job. Job had a lot to say. He went through a lot. He lost all of his cattle, all of his livestock. He lost his home. All of his kids were, uh, they all died uh, when a house collapsed. He went through just terrible conditions. But, you know, the entire time, start to finish, he struggled. He struggled with his experience but he, he, he actually didn't stop praising God. He didn't stop honoring God. But it was hard. So as we think about this, Job went through it. This is very much the story of Abraham. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cling to Abraham because I, I just really love, I just love how this ties in almost perfectly. Like the order of this psalm is, is like the order of Abraham's faith journey from leaving his home, wandering in, uh, in the promised land for years, for 25 years before, he had, before Isaac was born. Um, but, you know, in all of, you know, Abraham still praised God with everything in this psalm. And, and he died at a pretty good, good old age. He was 100 when Isaac was born. And he really lived on. But I tell you what, God promised him a son, and he promised him the promised land in future generations. Abraham, when he died, he owned a cemetery. But this was his praise. Moses, he, you know, through miracles, living in the presence of God, every day eating food supernaturally provided, manna in in the wilderness, living under the conditions of a pillar of fire at night, and a pillar of cloud during the day lived with the wickedness and the fallenness of the Israelites and through all the challenges they endured. Moses never went into the promised land. Never went in. He didn't make it because of his own fallenness. He made a mistake and had a lapse of judgment. He didn't go into the promised land, but this was his this was this is still his testimony, still his praise. King David, I mean I almost didn't want to put King David in here, but I mean, like, oh, all the Psalms that are associated with him, he lived such a, so much war and, and battle and bloodshed and family, family turbulence and political turbulence, but still, <laughs> this is his testimony. King Solomon, incredibly wealthy, I mean, just so much, book of Proverbs, everything in Proverbs, it's, it's the same. Um, Paul in the New Testament. So we've got to jump over to the New Testament. Paul is an interesting character, and I, I, I really struggle with why Hebrews is so debated in the modern day. There's an early church historian named Eusebius, and he said that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. 
So Paul wrote the book of Hebrews to the Hebrews. And it was translated to Greek by Luke. And so that's why all the thoughts are just, I mean, they're so Pauline in the New Testament. And the sentence structure and the, and the format and stuff is, is just so, it's so Luke. So what I'm, what I'm saying here is the entire book of Romans is Paul's testimony to the Gentiles, to the non-Israelite community, non-Jewish community. Romans is Paul's testimony to the Gentiles. It says all the same thing. Hebrews is his testimony to the Jews. It says the same thing. Jesus, this is cool to have, you know, one, two testimonies out of one person. This is Jesus's testimony largely in the book of John, like big time in chapter 14, also in chapter 10. This is Jesus's testimony there. All these praiseworthy things at the same time. (laughs) This is awesome. Jesus died. He was crucified on the cross. He died, buried, resurrected, talked to his disciples. You know, Josephus, you know, he witnessed by hundreds of people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, testifies to that, right? I mean, everybody in Israel knew it. Jesus ascends to the throne. He's reigning from heaven. He comes back a little bit later, tells John what to write in the book of Revelation. Jesus says the other, he says all the same stuff from the other side of the grave. Hey, guys, just want to let you know. It's the same. Praise God. I'm just letting you know from the other side. Keep on keeping on. Fight the good fight. It's worth it. So, um, if you're up for a good, a good hunt, then that, uh, that is my invitation to you is find, find these praises because they're there in Job, Abraham. Obviously, that's in Genesis. Moses, look in Deuteronomy. David, um, in Psalms, Solomon, Paul, and Jesus. All right. Let's go to the next slide. So Psalm 33 is broken into different sections. We have an introduction. We're so academic here. We have who's in school or who's still familiar with what a thesis statement is. Come on. More hands than that. All right. Well, we'll roll with that. I don't want, I don't want anybody to. Don't, don't put your hand up if you don't, you know, if you don't know. All right. So the Psalm begins. This is, this is beautiful. Oh, we'll go to the next one after that. So our intro is Psalms is verses one, two, and three, and we, this is this is an all-in psalm. All right, what we have here are we have six different ways of saying praise in the Hebrew, and so two in each verse. We have you know praise God twice in uh, verse one, two, and verse three, and so it's not well. It is parallelism. So I love parallelism. That's just a big word, and it's you know it's hard to remember sometimes, and it doesn't we don't talk about it, anything else in school or whatever, but parallelism is Hebrew poetry. And uh, so you could, you could reduce it to that, low, you know, to that lowest common denominator by accident and say this is Jewish poetry, but if it's written by God, if the Holy Spirit authored scripture, it's not Jewish poetry. It's not Hebrew poetry. This is God's poetry. And I would challenge people, and I would say that the poetry that is there in the Old Testament is also reflected somehow in the New Testament. Not only is God's poetry literary, it is in his activity. So what do we have here? Um, so the psalm begins out, uh, begins, who are the, uh, rejoice you righteous ones, it is fitting for the upright to praise him. So like, who, who is that? Who's, who are the righteous ones. Um, well, I mean, we can use the book of Psalms to help interpret the book of Psalms. Uh, since this is written in the Old Testament days, we can use the Old Testament to interpret what this is. Um, the righteous ones are 
according to Psalm 119, which is about the word of God, the righteous ones are those whose way is blameless and who live according to the Lord's instruction, who seek him with all of their heart. And so we have here, verse 1, rejoice. In Hebrew, that means give a ringing cry. Uh, the second part of verse 1, that word praise is a spontaneous and appropriate praise. Another, you know, the, the third praise, the next one is give, giving thanks through sacrifice. So we see praise, but it's a different kind of praise. Like we've talked about in the past, different words for love. And in English, we just have love. This, I mean, these are, we have, we have praise God, but this is like through something sacrificial. Um, sing praise. That's another one uh, in the Hebrew that uh, we get. Uh, verse 3. Uh, so I'm going to skip to this one because I just love it so much. And so I am not a particularly musical person. I just... I have always kind of lamented for whoever's in front of me because they got to hear me like whatever's happening, whatever's coming. I know it's got to be brutal, but I'm telling you what, I love sitting where the roof line is different because the music up here is like louder and way cooler than it is back there. I'm still not ready for the front row thing, but the music's better. So, so we have in verse three, the first sing to him that we have, that's singular. I mean, that's, that's a you sing. And then the next one is the joyful shout. That's communal. That's all of us. Okay. And so um, I, I'm going to dwell on this one a little bit because this is, this, is, this is quite possibly the big message for today. Verse 3 says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a joyful shout. This is two different things. This, sing a new song. This is mentioned six times in the Old Testament. Sing a new song is not singing a new song. That's figurative language. Sing a new song, that's your life. That's let your life, let your, the way you live out, praise God. Live differently because of some act of deliverance or some, some cause for renewed faith. Live differently. Let your life be a new song. That's what that means. Sing to him a new song. The second part of verse 3, play skillfully with a joyful shout. That's singing. That's really singing. So we have two different things here, right? Live your life differently. Make your life music. I mean, you know, the poetry in here should translate over to us too, right? I mean, what God is saying in all of Scripture is, you know, love God, love neighbor, right? But poetically, I mean, that's what love is. There's a poetic relationship. There's a poetic interdependence between things. And so let your life sing a new song and sing. So verse 2, not to go backwards, but just because it's interesting, it says, uh, praise Yahweh, praise God with the harp. And then then the next part of it kind of gets more specific with a a 10-string lyre, 10-string harp. Uh, this is this is interesting because it really kind of corresponds to the sacrificial system. It makes it reminds me of Leviticus chapter two verse one, where God's talking about grain offerings to Moses, and He's saying, you know, for those grain offerings, I'm not just going to want flour. You know, you can't just go get some Walmart flour. I'm going to need some fine flour. You're going to need some fine flour for that. But the purpose wasn't like to make anything harder. The purpose is. Slowing down, meditating, doing your best, 
making your labor an act of worship. So praising God with the harp, beautiful. Do it with a 10-string harp. Take some time to get to learn it, whatever your instruments are, right? Take some time. Get to learn it. Get to know it. Be deliberate, right? Worship. Turn it into an act of worship. That's why, you know, so that in that form of poetry, that form of parallelism, he says one thing and then builds on it in the next line. It's worthy of a little bit of uh, thought. Um, I'm not sure if it correlates, but it seems worth a thought. We're told in Scripture, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is singing a new song. I'm wondering if fine flour makes fine bread, and Jesus is the bread of life. You know, Peter, in his second epistle, he talks about how our hearts shouldn't be blemished. You need to have a pure heart. But, you know, that corresponded in the old sacrificial system to not having, not offering a blemished whatever animal. You know, I just, you know, I wonder if that's something to reflect on or not. But the point here is in this intro is that the people of God, the people of God are called to praise him because we have cause to praise him. Uh, verses 4 and 5. This is the psalmist's thesis statement. The word of Yahweh is right and true, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of Yahweh's unfailing love. So this is, this is the psalmist's declaration to everybody. But it's also, it's also God's activity. People of God give thanks and pr- uh, praise him, praise God, since God declares his worth and demonstrates his worth. The word of Yahweh is right and true. You know, we're still in the Old Testament, so I'm not quite sure we're ready to, you know, we're ready to talk about Jesus, but there is a correlation here. John calls Jesus the word of God. He is the living word. Um, all right, so, so that's, that's, that's one thing he's going to prove. The psalmist says that the word of Yahweh, the word of God, is upright and faithful and righteous and just, and that the whole earth is full of his unfailing love. Is this an appropriate psalm for the church today? Well, I think it absolutely is. I think at the same time, we need to talk about this because these are all things that many people wrestle with today, and the church needs to be able to talk about them. We have to be able to talk about these things with, our, with each other and give honest answers to unbelievers, to onlookers in our life who are wondering why our life is a little bit different. Like, what's, you know, like I do all the same things as that person over there, but that person just seems to be almost reluctantly saying it, blessed, you know? We need to have a testimony. So, in your bulletins, the point here is, God declares that he has worth. He demonstrates why he's worthy. First thing that we're trying to, that the psalmist is trying to prove here is the word of God is true and trustworthy. And so it's interesting because the psalmist uses creation. That's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Paul also used creation. So it wasn't like he was making like a, like a judicial argument. He was basically saying, all right, you want to argue about the validity of God, of God being true, creator, whatever. I'm done. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, all the stars by the breath of his mouth. So this is like me talking about making, making food during the intro, you know, like, we think that's praiseworthy. Getting your kids to cook a meal. This is praiseworthy. Not only that, I called Jenny the other day because I was like, oh, you know, I need a prop for this. I need a radiometer. I need something where you can make it, right? But it, ha- it moves. Like you finish all the parts and you put it together and it just moves by itself. I mean, God spoke the universe into creation, like, 
you, you know, it was done, right? It was done and perfect, and it had rules, and it moved, and it rejuvenated, right? Verse 7, he gathers the water of the seas into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. The water reference is like, it's like a fear one, right? Because God has clearly used water as an instrument for curse. There's a flood that happened a while ago. And famine, right? So these, and the seas are terrifying to so many of these people, right? But, you know, but then at the same time, your NIV translation says he could put the waters into jars, you know, whatever. He, God can put, he puts the water into storehouses. You know, God can treat the water like a farmer can treat grain. Only it's easier with water. <laughs> so God can control blessing and curse, this terrifying water, but also this desirous, you know, Blessing, right? We need water for crops, livestock, to satisfy our thirst. We need it for waters in the Old, you know, Old Testament time. I mean, you couldn't have a village if you didn't have a well. You didn't, couldn't have security or prosperity unless you had a water source, right? Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all of its inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And so the, you know, the point here is you know, exclusively, exclusively to say that the word of God is true and trustworthy because you got up today, right? Did you have to do anything to keep your heart beating today? Did you have to wind anything up? Or the air was still there. Sun still came up. Same rules, same governance. Hasn't he proved himself true just by benefit of like having so many consistent days where like he hasn't let you down? (laughs) You know, it's like seems to be pretty worthy of praise to me because I, I don't know. I mean, I think I could get my kids to make macaroni and cheese for probably like maybe six or seven days in a row. But after that, it would start to wear thin. But he's been doing this, this whole sunrise, sunset, universe, stars, like earth, like all that stuff for a pretty long time. It's true. It's pretty trustworthy. I was studying some for school not too long ago, and uh, I had made a mistake about Abraham's faith. I had thought that, so every, so I try to read the Bible chronologically as part of my daily reading plan, right? So I, I just wrapped up, reading the Bible, and I started over again. So, so the nature of the beast is that Abraham was like a year ago. And so in my mind, I had thought that Abraham came to faith when he didn't actually have to sacrifice his son Isaac for God. And that wasn't it. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's been wandering in the promised land for, for years now, right? And this is like, this is the third or something like that, revelation that God has you know, provided to, to Abraham. And he's like, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of so many nations. This is the first time Abraham talks back and he goes, how do I know? I love what you're saying. I've been talking to Sarah and she's got some words. Like, how do I know? And I think God like takes him outside the tent. This is chapter 15. And he says, uh, look at the stars. If you can count the stars, I'm going to make your offspring more numerous than the stars. I think Abraham was like, yeah, okay. If, if you can do that, okay. I get it now. I get it now. This is what God told Abraham. And the NIV translation is the best on this. Abraham told, God told Abraham, excuse me, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your help and your great reward. And that's when Abraham had faith. God told him, I am your great reward. That's one question I have for all of us. Like, 
you know, when Abraham was alive, you know, Noah died two years before he was born. Shem was still alive. Shem was on the boat. There wasn't anybody who didn't believe in God. All right, so, so something about this moment is different than the moment before. Now Abraham has faith, and God credits his faith as righteousness. I think it's because he realized what God was saying, right? I am your great reward. Stop looking around for all this other stuff, right? I'll take care of you. I'm your reward. Do we know that? I am your reward, God says. John says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has not been created. That's a little bit on the wordy side. In the Greek, like the words are very simple, but it's a huge thought. It was Jesus. But, you know, one more thing on creation, and I'll move on. I mean, look at Scripture, right? I mean, this is what it says. Consider this. Not only is God so grand and so praiseworthy, just in creation, but I mean, like, we have to consider ourselves. The land is not our own. I mean, where we, I mean, this, we didn't, uh, this is not Bacon's castles, right? I mean, God made it first. We're on borrowed land. That's what Genesis 1 says. We're on borrowed land. Psalm 139, Isaiah chapter 44, even Job, even Job and all the suffering, your body is not your own. God knitted you together. He knitted me together. It's not my body. It's, I'm borrowed, man. It's not my body. This is borrowed. Let's take it one step further, like, you know, one step further, like after God created Adam, right? There was a body, right? It wasn't an animated body. The Holy Spirit gave Adam the breath of life, and that's all throughout Scripture. That's all throughout Scripture. Our bre- our, it says all in the Old Testament, all over the place. I mean, we get the Holy Spirit, we get the breath of life until we're done. We have to give it back. It's on loan. It's not our breath. It's, you know... The body's not your own. The land's not our own. Our breath is borrowed. I have no, it's not even my breath. So it's not a bad breath. It's good breath. But it's borrowed. So the word of God is true and trustworthy. Full stop. I love this. So one of the things it says in the opening is that God loves righteousness and justice. And so we kind of need to establish the fact that God can't truly love something unless he is that thing too like we can kind of think that you know i love righteousness and justice but am i totally righteous and just no i have too many exceptions to the rule but god doesn't he's righteous and just and he loves righteousness and justice so what do you have here i just love the parallelism here i love how every every line of each verse like just backs up the one you know this is such a grace of god in hebrew poetry like when we're blessed with, you know, God says one thing one way, and then the next line, he says the exact same thing a different way. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I, as a ranger of a scout camp, I, like I just this past weekend, I had a work weekend. I had 200 people at camp, and I had like half a dozen projects I wanted to work on. I mean, I can tell people what I want them to do. I can write paragraphs. You know, I can write emails saying what I want them to do. Like I can do walk arounds with people and tell them what I want to do. And like, does, is, I mean, I could get 60% of that done or 80% of that done. I can't get it all done. What we have here is God is faithful to his plan and his people. I think this is something that we, this is a trap that we fall into. And I think this is one of the harder parts about having a thought for thought translation Bible is that sometimes we don't feel like we're getting the best return on investment for our prayer time. That's a little bit, that's a little bit rough. I don't think we should do that. Something that we sometimes forget is that God has his plan 
And he has his purposes, but he also has his people. He can't be loyal to the people before he's loyal to his plan. Let me go back to Abraham, right? Right there in chapter 15, when Abraham says to God, like, how do I know what's going to happen? How do I know what's going to happen? God says, I'm going to give you that land, but here's what's going to go down first. All of your descendants are going to go down to Egypt, which is actually a blessing. He loved Abraham's descendants enough to send them to, the, to, to Egypt. That was him saving them. But he knew that Egypt was going to go into its fallenness, right? So, but he didn't take Israel out until the Amorites in the promised land had come to the end of their tolerable wickedness and until Egypt had come to the end of its tolerable wickedness. God wouldn't bless the Israelites. He wouldn't bless the Israelites at Egypt's expense or the Amorites' expense until the Amorites or Egyptians earned it. Israelites had already earned the blessing. They earned it. It was promised. It took 400 years to fulfill because Egypt and Canaan, the Amorites, hadn't finished earning judgment. So do we, do we recognize that with God sometimes? Like, we want blessing, but is it at somebody or something's expense? I don't know if we always consider those angles. And that's pretty humbling. My point is to say that God is faithful to his plan and his people. There's mention of uh, who, like, who is God's people. I think in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's really easy, right? We're talking about Israel or the southern kingdom or whatever. God talking about his remnant people. In Exodus, he talks about you know, his people. The definition of God's people in the Old Testament is they're a royal priesthood and a holy nation, which means that they're loyal to him, right? And they testify to God's character. And in the New Testament, Peter tells the church that we're to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So in the Old Testament, Israel, they kind of have borders and boundary markers and stuff like that. They've got a land for a time, but we're a holy nation right now. So I'm not, I think countries have to be careful about saying, well, my country is a holy nation. I think God, uh, God's country, God's people, God's holy nation are people who are loyal to him. We have to keep that in perspective a little bit. Verses 13 to 17. God is never indifferent to any of the earth's inhabitants. This little section, God, you know, psalmist is saying what God has done, right? He observes everybody. Like, how is he supposed to make a person's heart or make a person's body and then not know about them? I think he keeps pretty good track. But everything that he makes, he observes. And he's fit to do so. I'm pretty sure people who make, like, Ford F-150s, they're pretty equipped to know like if they're running satisfactory or not. So if God can make us, I'm pretty sure he's qualified. And the psalmist says so. He's qualified to judge. And he observes. And he doesn't let anybody slip through the cracks. God, the nature of being God is, he can't clock off. He's not indifferent to anybody. If you're worth making, you're worth observing, God's never indifferent to anybody. Then we have some language here about a king is not saved by a mighty army, a warrior is not delivered by great strength, a horse is a false sense of salvation. I think that we get into this trap sometimes, you know, the nations and everything, but truly God is always watching out for his nation. We have tons of examples of this all throughout scripture, but what's interesting is God's people, Israel, God's people, the church, 
always live with the word of God at the center, right? So Moses and uh, Israel, like in the wilderness for 40 years, right smack dab in the center of that community, because they were all assigned where to live, was the word of God, the Ten Commandments on tablets inside the ark, inside the tabernacle, with all of the Israelite community living around that thing, the word of God. People who weren't doing that weren't living there. In Israel, when they got to the promised land, every, every, all praise and worship, I mean, all that stuff, it all happened wherever the temple was. And where was the temple? The temple was where the ark, I mean, the ark was in the temple, and inside the ark was the word of God. So they always went, that was the center, the word of God. For us as the church, our center is the word of God. It has, nothing's changed. Verses 18 and 19, now the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him. So verse 18, the first part is defined by the second part. I, uh, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him. Fear is hard. It, like, fear took me a long time to like, grow into like, what is fear? Fear is those who hope for his loyal love. Loyal love. You know, loyal love. Unfailing love. That's what loyal love. Like We can think we know what loyal is today here. Like you know, Every once in a while, somebody might let you down. They're still loyal to you. God doesn't do that. Like Loyal is faithful Love. I'm not going to forget. Your thought for thought translations of verse 18, they're going to live out this, I oftentimes leave out the soul part. The eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loyal love, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive, to keep them alive in famine. So we, we can think two things here, right? We can think like physical death and physical famine. That's only going to go so far. God's pretty eternal, and he's not going to limit himself to the finite. So there's instances, according to God's plan, where I think he's going to help people deliver them from actual famine on earth and actual death on earth. But I think that this is the long game. This is the infinite game. He's going to deliver us from his people from spiritual famine and spiritual death. Spiritual famine, though, I think is worthy of a, worthy of a moment of our time. Um, Israel was straying, and God, through Amos, the prophet, He says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, but not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Their spiritual thirst will not be quenched because it's going to be dried up spiritual famine. In the New Testament, we have something comparable to this. Paul tells Timothy about spiritual famine for unbelievers, people who've rejected God. He says, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching hears want to hear, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But God's going to protect us from that. And so what Jesus tells, the antidote for the spiritual famine the antidote for spiritual death is Jesus. I mean, he, he says it. He tells us what we need to do by using an analogy. In chapter 15, he, he says, he makes a grapevine analogy. He says, God the Father is a vine dresser. He's taking care of this grapevine. Jesus says, I am the vine. Abide in me. Just live in me, right? So when you graft, when you graft something in to a tree, it just, it just lives there. And then the host tree sends life, sends the sap through those shoots and keep them alive. Jesus is just saying, just trust me. Just live in me. I'll take care of everything else. So we need to live in him. Verses 20, 21, 22, our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and shield. Sounds so, you know, from, from the story of Abraham, our hearts rejoice 
because we trust. And so my big question is, do we have fresh cause for praise? Is everything about our faith from hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago? This psalm says every generation should have cause for praise. I'm pretty sure that every person should have cause for praise. We have the joy of our salvation. Are we hoping and trusting? Are we really buying a lot of insurance? Insurance is great, but where's your trust and faith, hope for salvation? When people have faith, Abraham came to faith. What God said not too long afterward is live in my presence and be blameless, right? In James 4, 8 in the New Testament, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, purify your minds, right? Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, all who call on him in the truth and genuineness. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Are we drawing near to God so God can draw near to you? Are we grateful for what we have? I think, I think the beginning of faith and the beginning of trusting is being grateful and then letting it happen from there. That's the beginning of abiding being grateful for what you receive and then watching it unfold, but to praise him, to rejoice in him, to have fresh cause for praise for all those things, we have to have a relationship with God, a relationship with Yahweh. So are we drawing near so that he can draw near? So the point is, God's people wait eagerly, eagerly. We rejoice trustingly. We hope lovingly. We don't wait and rejoice in hope, right? We don't do that. We rejoice, we wait eagerly, we trust rejoicingly, we rejoice trustingly and hope lovingly, knowing that he is our help and shield and our righteous ruler and our holy creator. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.